Jackie Wolcott previously served as the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations in Vienna and as U.S. Representative to the International Atomic Energy Agency. Anthony Ruggiero is the former White House National Security Council Senior Director for Counterproliferation and Biodefense and a Senior Fellow here at FDD. Together, both are now behind the wheel of FDD's newly launched Nonproliferation and Biodefense Program, serving as Program Chair and Senior Director, respectively, where they'll lead the program's efforts to prevent America's adversaries from possessing and developing weapons of mass destruction, perhaps chief among the most pressing national security issues that we face. And both are joining us today to discuss the program's timely objectives and the very hard work ahead. I'm FDD Senior Advisor Rich Goldberg, filling in for Cliff May this week. I've had the privilege of working with both of our guests here at FDD and as White House National Security Council Director for Countering Iranian Weapons of Mass Destruction. So here we go with a lot to unpack. We're glad to have you along for the ride here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the we game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. Ambassador Wolcott, Anthony, thanks so much for joining Foreign Policy. Great to have you on. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And to our listeners, Cliff May is off. Rich Goldberg here. I'm very excited. I can never replace Cliff May. I can never fill his shoes. They're large shoes. But I'm going to do my best and welcome your feedback. Please still leave this a five-star review as you would any other of Cliff's podcasts. Anthony, a question uh, to you. You've served uh, throughout government for many, many years. Uh, State Department, Capitol Hill, the National Security Council as Senior Director uh, for Counterproliferation and Biodefense. Talk a little bit about your experiences in government and what uh, what's led you now to your perspectives uh, on counterproliferation, nonproliferation policy uh, from the U.S. government. Thanks, Rich. It's great to be with you uh, and, and Jackie. Um, you know, I, I spent a lot of my career focused on North Korea uh, and Iran and sanctions. Uh, but the last position I had, as you mentioned, is a senior director at the National Security Council, which gave me a much broader view of of not only the nonproliferation issues we face, but uh, being a senior director chairing the meetings uh, as the COVID nineteen pandemic began here in the well in China and then unfortunately in the United States, uh, it definitely gives a different perspective and is really uh, you know bringing I brought that back to FDD. I was I was at FDD as a senior fellow before I went back in government. And Ambassador, you have held uh, a lot of very interesting positions in the U.S. government uh, that that touch uh, this arena. Uh, the Security Council uh, a few years back under the Bush administration, uh, our ambassador in Vienna to the U.N. organizations there, including the International Atomic Energy Agency, uh, a, a key agency in the nonproliferation space. Um, talk to us about your experiences and how you come to approach these issues. Thanks, Rich. Um- in a way, 
in a way I've followed, or maybe Iran's followed me around for a lot of my career um, on the, in the non-pro area. As you mentioned, I was ambassador to the UN and IAEA most recently in Vienna. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a while. But um, going back to when I was ambassador in Geneva as um, ambassador to the Conference on Disarmament and the president's representative on the Nonproliferation of Nuclear Weapons or the NPT Review Conference, um, I was already uh, facing the Iran problem. And to add to that job, I was sent over every quarter for a year, 2004 and five, to Vienna to be acting governor. And that was right after it became apparent that Iran had uh, some problems. And we were working to get it uh, referred to the UN Security Council. As it turned out, that happened in 2006, but I arrived at the UN Security Council as ambassador about the same month. And so the resolutions that we worked on in New York, we passed three unanimously, well, actually two unanimously, and I think one abstention on the third one, which was Indonesia. So that means China and Russia were part of the, the yeses. Um, so we did all of that. And then uh, most recently at the um, IAEA, for the first time, we passed a resolution on Iran in eight years, um, first time in eight years on safeguards. And uh, we, I'd love to talk more about that, too. And we absolutely will. Uh, Anthony, back to you for a moment. When you scan the world right now in the lanes of nonproliferation and counterproliferation, what keeps you up at night? Who are you watching? What are the actors involved here that the U.S. government is watching? You know, I, I referenced uh, my previous position. I, I think um, one of the, you know, it was a great position to be in in the National Security Council as a senior director, but, uh, you know, it came with significant downsides. Uh, as I tell people that um, you learn that there are really monsters out there, uh, you know, doing bad things and and, and opposing, uh, you know, essentially our way of life. Um, and when you think on the nuclear side, you think about nuclear proliferation, uh, it's going in the wrong direction, uh, right? And, and so you've got North Korea who, who had their first nuclear tests uh, 15 years ago, uh, as, as surprising as that is to believe, 15 and a half years ago, I guess. Uh, Iran is headed in that direction. You know, when you look at, when I look at North Korea, you know, North Korea is, is, is Iran in 10 years, unfortunately. Uh, and then you have Russia, a nuclear state, uh, invading a non-nuclear state uh, in Ukraine and essentially threatening the use of nuclear weapons or chemical weapons. And what I worry about is what does that say to uh, both our adversaries, uh, North Korea and Iran and others, but then to our allies, uh, we have to make sure that the United States is able to both deter Russia from using those weapons. And then if that deterrence fails, uh, appropriately respond. Because if we don't, if we don't do both of those, uh, then we will basically give countries the green light to develop nuclear weapons and or chemical weapons. That's the trend that, that worries me the most uh, on the nuclear space. And with those trends, uh, you are, along with uh, Ambassador Wolcott, chairing uh, you and Andrea Stricker at FDD will be uh, directing a new program at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies that's just launching on nonproliferation. Tell us a little bit about the program, uh, what the what the idea is and what you'll be looking at and writing about. 
Yeah, we're very excited about this. Uh, as you said, Ambassador Wolcott's going to be the chair of the program. I'll be the senior director. Andrea Stricker will be the deputy director of the program. Uh, you know, I talked about the nuclear. It's really built on four pillars. Uh, and part of the reason we, we, we want to do this program and we are doing this program is because, as I noted, non-state and, and state actors, our adversaries, are trying to possess, develop, or, or harbor ambitions to acquire these weapons, nuclear, chemical, radiological, and biological weapons. And so the program itself is built on four pillars. I mentioned the nuclear nonproliferation part of that. That's one pillar. Biodefense and pandemic preparedness is, is, is obviously an important part now. You know, the societal and economic impact of the COVID-19 pandemic is, is easy for everyone to understand. But that's, you know, whether it's a lab, whether that was a lab leak or a natural occurrence, putting that aside, there's also the bioterrorism aspect that we have to think about, too. Uh, then there's the chemical weapons part. This is an area where there's actually some bipartisan consensus here. But unfortunately, you know, the, the weapons, chemical weapons that used to be, there used to be a, over almost 100 year taboo against using them. They've been, chemical weapons have been used more times in the last decade uh, than at any time in recent history. And so, again, just like nuclear, we're sort of going in the wrong, the, the trend line is in the wrong direction. Russia is a, is a major part of that and, and basically allowing, uh, covering for Syria's use of chemical weapons against their own population. And then the final pillar is really about delivery systems. I mean, this is, this is the part that probably gets the least focus uh, with regard to weapons of mass destruction focus or proliferation focus. But this is an area that ex that is expanding, not just state actors that are using them, and we're seeing that on the battlefield in Ukraine, but then also, uh, you know, non-state actors that are trying to use it. And so the goal here is really to bring together the expertise that FDD already has here. Uh, but we're very excited. We're very excited about the program. We're excited that Ambassador Walcott has joined us and uh, we're looking forward to to doing a lot of great things uh, going it, it forward. It sounds like you're creating uh, a shadow NSC directorate uh, for the WMD directorate that, that you once were senior director of. So it sounds very exciting. It also sounds uh, very terrifying. Uh, the list uh, of threats uh, that you just went through in the scan of the world. Uh, I'm struck that you know we are in this moment of foreign policy consideration where we are told Nothing else matters but the China threat, and the China threat is absolutely rising uh, and is key in, in the last national security strategy, top the list of, of state actors that we needed to be worried about. But in this functional area, it doesn't matter which state possesses or which non-state actor possesses. These are the deadliest weapons known to man that can do mass destruction to the U.S. Uh, and our allies. So very, very worrisome indeed, important work. Ambassador, I want to come back to you. You mentioned this. I want to dive deep. Obviously, we are right now uh, awaiting the outcome of the International Atomic Energy Agency's Board of Director, Board of Governors meeting that will be coming uh, this coming week uh, in Vienna, and the consideration potentially of another censure resolution on Iran for what appears to be uh, it's a violation of its comprehensive safeguards agreement uh, with the IAEA. Tell us a little bit about what is going on there what your experiences were on this issue, because you mentioned something that happened under your leadership in 2020. And I guess my question is, where have we gone since then? But explain it to our listeners. What, what's happening with Iran? What is this investigation about? Why is it important? Thanks, Rich. And and I just want to add to uh, what Anthony said. I'm, um, 
I'm new to FDD um, and as chair, but I've been using FDD products, all the um, overnight briefs and all your podcasts for years and uh, have great admiration. So I'm excited to be part of this. And a former um, commissioner on the Commission on International Religious Freedom, where Cliff May was also a co-commissioner. Uh, that is true. So, so, we- so you know, you've, you've been made for foreign policy for a long time. Uh, it's it, <laughs> it just... It's a shame you got me as a host, but but, but we welcome you all, all, all the same. <laughs> no, I've, I appreciate that very much. Um, and I've Anthony and I worked together. I was on the other end of all those um, all those meetings he was holding at the NSC. I was in Vienna um, trying to answer what was going on on the ground. And let me tell you a little bit about that. Um, when I arrived in Vienna in 2018, it was not long after the Trump withdrawal from the JCPOA. And the board members never got over it um, the entire time I was there, which was over two years. They had, you know, they still think it's a landmark agreement, a huge diplomatic coup. And in every single board uh, meeting, there was everybody lamented, almost every country called us out for having left the deal. In some ways, the the atmosphere was a little bit um, as much anti-U.S. as it was anti-Iran. but of course, we had Israel's um, extraction, or whatever word we want to use for it, of all those the huge file and archives in two thousand earlier in two thousand eighteen. And one of the first things that I did when I got to um, Vienna was well, I was invited by the government of Israel to come and look at the archives, which I did do um, in January two thousand nineteen. So it was still pretty early on, and everybody was still reviewing those. Um, but it, they were quite astounding, and um, I met with the president then, uh, prime minister, and said, you know, in Vienna, most people on the board of governors don't even understand what these archives are. They, um, you know, they're being told the storyline from Iran and Russia and others is not, you know, it's either made up or it's old history. It has no current relevance. And I, I said, if we, if you want us to build a case in Vienna, we would really, it would be helpful to be able to brief on some of this information and of course, it was highly classified at that time. But he said, "Yes, um, if if we, what's the use of having the information if we don't share it?" So that allowed us in Vienna and other places to start briefing um, on, you know, what had been found and build the coalition that we needed to finally, in 2020, June of 2020, pass the first censure resolution on Iranian safeguards um, violations in, as I mentioned, eight years. Um, it was not easy. And the two votes against the, the resolution, by the way, of interest, Russia and China voted. They were the only no votes. Um, so now we're two years later from when we passed that resolution, the same June board meeting coming up next week. Um, the director general, uh, Rafael Grossi, uh, issued his report on the safeguards last, this last Monday. It was an extremely strong report. And it talks about four sites that have, um, they've been looking at, um, they learned about, the IAEA learned about through the archives that Israel got. And um, in this report, it's very hard hitting, very detailed. It names the sites, it names, um, you know, all the violations. And in the UN context, this was a, you know, quite a revelation. And it was sort of like, over to you, Board of Governors. I've done what I can do so far. So now, there is a resolution circulating just this week. Um, 
is the United States and the E3, um, uh, the German, the Russians, I'm sorry, the, um, the French, the UK and um, the Germans. And I think the real deal is going to be, do they, do they up the ante on this or is it going to be, you know, a repeat of something that was done two years ago, even though nothing's improved and things have gotten worse. Um, I think it should be a wake up call to the board because they've been fixated on the JCPOA political deal and this illusion that that was going to stop all pathways to a nuclear weapon for Iran. And meanwhile, Iran has been hiding and lying and sanitizing and moving things around and, and advancing its technologies and centrifuges. So anyway, I think it's going to be really interesting. Um, the right, last time around, the E3 took the lead and they, um, they watered down the resolution for the Russians trying to get their vote. In the end, Russia voted against it anyway. And of course, with the Ukraine situation, we don't really have that. that no more Russia appeasement anymore. No that, more, that, that's I, going I, out the window. Not. So it should yeah, be quite something how things change. Uh, I, I will admit I was also in some of those NFC meetings uh, that Anthony was leading that you, that you referenced. Uh, and, and, and boy, do I have uh, good stories uh, that I will never be able to tell. But um, I remember. Uh, I also would say that I have a piece out uh, this past week uh, with the former Israeli National Security Advisor, Jacob Nagel. I'd suggest to folks on this, as you were just explaining, and the importance of this investigation, not the JCPOA here. We're talking about the treaty obligation that Iran has, the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty, its underlying obligation to disclose, to declare nuclear material and activities to the IAEA. And apparently, as you noted, has been hiding these sites. And I agree with you, this question of where are we going? Is this uh, a repeat uh, of two years ago or not? I think I would frame my question this way. Let's put aside the fact that the Biden administration has gone through now four board meetings uh, since you uh, left your position uh, all through last year, March, June, September, November of 2021, where this was still a lingering investigation. There was no cooperation from Iran. There were no resolutions urging action throughout the entire year. We've come now through a March board meeting. Uh, again, no action. Now we're coming up to a, a June board meeting with this possible resolution. And obviously, it's alongside the larger context of the IRGC designation. The, that's the Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps and whether the president would agree to lift that from the foreign terrorist organization list and some of the backlash from Congress, Democrats in Congress calling on the president to abandon uh, this uh, uh, frivolous uh, uh, work towards reviving an old flawed nuclear deal. And so let's let's assume for a moment that there's, in fact, some sort of a change going on here, that there there may be an openness in the Biden administration for a pressure campaign, whatever that would look like that would include political pressure. Had you stayed in office, had you stayed at, as ambassador in Vienna? Uh, for another board meeting in March of 2021. What was the trajectory, right? What was your next step that could inform what the Biden administration's next step might be after what appears to be maybe a little heftier of a resolution than last time, but but maybe not much more than that? Where should this go from there? Where would it have gone that if, that if the Biden administration is finally ready to resume where they should have been in early 2021, where should they go from here? Well, I felt that the pressure, the maximum pressure campaign was working. And, and we saw that in many ways. Uh, for instance, um, the money to Hezbollah was cut 
um, dramatically and Hezbollah for the first time had to sort of go out and fundraise. I mean, these things, you hear from this administration that the maximum pressure campaign didn't work, but I think that we were ramping it up. And I do think that the director general has been in a precarious position over the last, um, well, since the new administration came in, because it was clear they wanted to resurrect the JCPOA and they didn't want um, the safeguards problems to sort of interfere with that negotiation. So, um, you know, ultimately the, the structure that's put in place is if, if countries don't comply with their comprehensive safeguards or they are in violation, they get referred to the UN Security Council. And, and that's what we had done in the past from the IAEA. Now, it's a different world. It's a different world, even though the Iran situation just seems to go on and on. But, you know, there's not much stigma anymore to veto, vetoing in the Security Council. Russia and China did it again uh, on North Korea. Well, actually, I should say that was the first time they did it on North Korea last, uh, I think it was last week. But, um, you know, we had Security Council resolutions when I was there in the, uh, working in the Security Council as ambassador on North Korea, and they both passed unanimously. So it used to happen that you could find some kind of consensus um, on these big, important, you know, non-proliferation issues. And Russia and China had seemed to have some feeling of responsibility as nuclear weapon states to sort of protect that status and protect the P5 in the UN. Now it's all sort of broken down. So I guess to answer your question, I think ultimately we would have been headed, heading toward the Security Council. But, you know, then it's over to them. And, and that's not working too well either, which sort of reminds us that there's a lot of... Uh, breakage right now in the system. Anthony, anything you wanted to add uh, on the Iran file before we move on to uh, other threats in the world that we're facing? Yeah, I mean, the only thing I would add is that, uh, you know, there's a little bit of uh, effort by the Iranians to to try and make this case that the archive is not legitimate. Uh, I think that's something that they're very focused on. To, they, they, these are the files that the Israelis, uh, you know, took out of Iran uh, in 2018, and then really started the investigation that we're talking about now. And, and hopefully, the board will talk about next week. I think it's important for listeners to understand that that's a deception, that's a smokescreen, and there might be some even in the Biden administration and other governments that support the JCPOA that would make the same case, right? That this is historical and all of that and and who knows about the the legitimacy of this that's not the investigation or that's not where we are now where we are now is about iran's deception iran's unwillingness to answer legitimate questions from the iaea that's that's the only for right now that is the question on the table uh, and so Iran and, and, and their supporters will try try and you know enact this smokescreen to convince people that this is either historical or or not legitimate. But they will they will but by doing that they're trying to hide the fact that Iran for nearly four years let's be clear has tried to obstruct this investigation by sanitizing sites and not answering questions and providing just illegitimate answers. I mean. Ambassador Wolcott is correct that Grossi's report was very strong. I mean, he's the one who gets to determine the, the tone of that report. Uh, that's one of the benefits of having a strong director general. 
uh, and, and, and we have one, and he put forward a strong report and has really boxed in the Biden administration. The only other thing I'll say is that this was clearly a strategic error by the Biden administration. I mean, from the beginning, they thought the best approach was to combine these issues in the sense of don't do anything in the IAEA to harm the negotiations. And in the end, that has backfired for them because now Iran has not uh, complied with this investigation and it has really scuttled their negotiations, even, even notwithstanding the IRGC question. But there's really, as, as Grossi has said in public, not in private, but in public a couple of times, there's no way that this deal can be reconstituted, the 2015 nuclear deal, without a resolution on these questions. Okay, let, let's move on. You've mentioned a lot of other state actors. And I want to talk a little bit of non-state actors as well. China, Russia, uh, two uh, nuclear powers, two proliferators. Uh, talk a little bit about what you're watching with respect to China first and then Russia, Anthony. Yeah, there's so much to, to unpack there. I mean, Ambassador Wolcott mentioned the China and Russia vetoing the uh, North Korea sanctions bill, you know, uh, resolution at the Security Council, which is, you know, uh, quite interesting since both of those countries don't even implement UN, uh, UN sanctions on North Korea. Uh, but from the China perspective, you know, looking at the expansion of their nuclear program and, and what that means for the United States. Uh, and and what that means for trying to deter two peer competitors. Uh, I, the other thing that I think is uh, is lost in the conversation, unfortunately, is that uh, China hit a global pandemic that killed over a million people, a million Americans, uh, and and many others are suffering because of it. Uh, and there has really been no accountability for that, and the the Chinese are standing in the way. Uh, of a real investigation. Uh, so those are those are some of the things that jump out. And on the Russia side, you know, Russia uh, continues, as I mentioned before, uh, in the Ukraine war and, and their threats on the nuclear and chemical weapons side really, um, really throw the, the, the proliferation landscape uh, and it puts it in peril, unfortunately. Uh, and Russia and China together, I mean, I think the veto is representative of what they've been doing maybe under the radar in some instances in smaller UN organizations. I mean, Rich, you know this well, uh, but I think it is, it is, it is a recipe for what they're going to do in the future, in the near future, which is, you know, uh, try and shield their adversaries uh, from accountability, whether it's in the security council or in other organizations like the IAEA. And in the space we look at, um, it's notable, and you brought this up earlier when you're talking about the categories you're looking at within the program. We think mostly in terms of nuclear, I think, when people talk about weapons of mass destruction, um, but, but you are concerned in other areas. Russia comes up a lot in the news in the chemical weapons space, uh, Syria in the chemical weapons space. Um, there's the bio weapons space as well that you'd be looking at, and you mentioned bio defense. How do you look from a resource perspective within the U.S. government and the weight in our national security, how you approach these different threats? Um, how, how do you organize around these threats? Um, just help our listeners understand sort of how, how, you, how you, from a policy perspective, prioritize, get your hands around um, different state actors, non-state actors that may be involved in, in all these different uh, types of, of WMD-related threats. 
Yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, I'll just say for the listeners who are who are not following the space as directly, you know, when we say Russia and chemical weapons, uh, you know, the Russians use Novichok in uh, the United Kingdom uh, to try and assassinate uh, what they considered a, a dissident, uh, and then they used the same uh, chemical weapon uh, in Russia against uh, Navalny. Uh, to try and uh, assassinate him, uh, both of them did not work, but uh, did not did not succeed. Luckily, although in the United Kingdom, uh, an innocent uh, person did die. Uh, so they they are using those weapons. You know, to your point on resources, it, it it's a it's a great question in the sense that um, you know we have traditionally focused post nine eleven on nuclear, uh, nuclear both on the state side and the non state side. Uh, and and I think one of the things that both the COVID nineteen pandemic and the use of chemical weapons has has brought back to the forefront is you know ensuring that we're prepared, especially on the non state state side, uh, for you know the potential use uh, of the of these weapons. Uh, I think on the bio side, you know certainly you know there could be uh, terrorist groups out there that that look at COVID 19s impact and try and recon, uh, reconstitute that. Now, you know, I think they could also look at chemical weapons as a potential as well. Uh, that that would be the main concern I have is looking at the impact of COVID-19 and do some of these terrorist groups look back uh, at some of these weapons that, uh, that, that maybe they have uh, passed over in terms of their focus. Uh, but resource-wise, you know, we you have to be ready for everything. Um, you know, the United States needs to be, and our allies need to be 100% correct, uh, whereas uh, terrorists, uh, especially in the WMD space, only have to be right once. Uh, and so we have to be focused on all of it, unfortunately. Um, and it requires the resources dedicated to that. Ambassador, uh, just back to you, you had mentioned this before in the context uh, that the two countries that voted against uh, the resolution on Iran last time around were Russia and China. I'm curious, your interactions, uh, any stories, uh, your perspective of interactions with either the Russian ambassador or the Chinese ambassador within a a major nonproliferation related international organization uh, involved in diplomacy with them at times, what is their demeanor? How do they act? What are they doing there? What is their strategy there? Uh, certainly one of them has been in the news lately because of his role in brokering what would have been a new Iran nuclear deal. But but any, any stories you can share and your perspectives on that? Sure. Um, I, that just brought back a lot of memories, actually, Rich. Uh, you know, one thing the Russians and the Chinese both do pretty well is keeping their diplomats in place for um longer periods than most countries do. And I think that's a benefit to them, uh, unfortunately for us. Um, the Russian ambassador, Yulianov in, in Vienna, he's still there. Um, in fact, he is the person who has has was assigned the task of representing us, which I'm, I still can't even get over. Um, he is a, a typical kind of old school Soviet diplomat, if you will. Um, sort of a bully, insulting, uh, tries to intimidate people. Um, I can tell you, I was walking, We at that time, we're still doing P5 meetings, uh, P5 uh, dinners every quarter, um, even though they were painful. And I was walking into the one of them, and he, would, he was, the Russian ambassador was standing outside the house that we were going into and typing into his phone. And I 
got out of my car and I said, hello. And he didn't even look up and he said, I'm sending anti-American tweets. And I laughed, but I'm sure he was sending anti-American tweets. And this is the guy who has supposedly been representing our interests uh, to the Iranians. So um, it's, I, I, I don't know what else to say about that. Um, the Chinese and the Russians work very closely together. I guess that's not a surprise to anybody um, against the West, against the United States. That's, I think that's the plan. That's the, that's the ongoing plan. Um, they are using uh, all kinds of uh, ways to sort of infiltrate, if you will, the UN organizations with staffing and, and more money. China's giving more money than they ever did. And it's a contributor. Um, so I, I just think that um, across the board, we're going to see, you know, more and more sort of um, uh, misuse or disuse of the structures that have been, you know, that we were all maybe a little nostalgic for, which don't really work right now. And, um, and Russia's, you know, what they're doing at OPCW, what, you know, what the World Health Organization has been doing with China, whatever that is, it's not right. So anyway, it, it it's, uh, it's, they're a force, there are two forces, and they're two big forces that were, uh, that are increasing their weapons of all kinds. And, you know, I think that's the future, unfortunately. Anthony, uh, I'm sure you were involved in a lot of bilateral and multilateral negotiations and discussions uh, around these issues. Uh, we just heard a little bit about our adversaries. Uh, if you have anything to add on that from your own interactions, uh, I welcome them. But I also sort of want to understand, you know, we're, we're not alone in this in this space, right? We think and sometimes it feels like it, especially when some of our friends in Europe uh, don't really show some moral fortitude uh, sometimes to stand up for what's right. But we have allies elsewhere. I mean, when we think about Japan, think about South Korea, um, they have major, major st stakeholder status in the outcomes of nonproliferation vis-a-vis -vis North Korea, vis-a-vis -vis China, um, increasingly vis-a-vis -vis Russia. Uh, and so uh, I do sort of wonder what what is the discussion like with our allies? Who who is good on these issues? Bad? It's a, a terrible frame of it, good and bad. But you know, for for folks, you know, how do our allies view this in different areas of the world, and what needs to be done in that space to build a coalition uh, that can actually be lasting and effective? Uh, so it's not just the United States uh, going it alone. Yeah, it depends on the issue, right? I think we like to use uh, the phrase uh, like-minded countries, right? And sometimes they have different definitions. Uh, I'm sure Ambassador Wolcott can talk about that in the context of the IEA and, and perhaps the Security Council. But I, I would say, you know, North Korea, we have one set. When we were talking about export controls with regard to semiconductors, that was another set of allies. Uh, you know, when you're looking at the Russia... Uh, and I served at the Treasury Department the last time Russia uh, invaded Ukraine or, or the, the last Ukraine conflict. Uh, so that was a whole different set of allies uh, there. I, I, I will say sort of from the you know, strategic standpoint, there, there, is, there is a difference of opinion uh, on how to approach these uh, in, in a lot of ways. And, and, and I think about this in a lot of ways through the prism of the use of uh, sanctions or financial measures, which have become more prevalent uh, than than uh, in the Bush administration, W. Bush administration, really when some of that began. But when you look at that that issue set, 
and you look at our allies, there are some people who believe that we should shoot for multilateral sanctions. In other words, make sure that everyone's on board and then we all go together and we all move together. And there's some benefit to that. Uh, but, you know, we can't shy away from the fact that the United States in a lot of ways leads on these issues, sometimes because we have the, the resources that are involved in that, whether it's because of our, the power of U.S. sanctions uh, and sometimes we have to go alone and set an example and go further than maybe some of our allies are willing to go and then bring them along. Uh, and it really depends on the issue. Uh, on North Korea, we see that. You know, right now, this administration is using the Security Council and the, and the resolution was vetoed. And then they did these weak U.S. sanctions that were really not worth even doing if they're going to point out the, their own flaws in the in the press release, uh, they they really need to think about how they lead by u- using U.S. sanctions, using U.S. power, and then have our allies come along. Ambassador Wolcott, you obviously met with allies as well. Who would you say were America's closest allies, most dependable allies, at least in Vienna? Uh, who was Maybe a little shakier. <laughs> um, you know, there's a group called Juice Cans, um, and it's it's got mostly the same makeup in all international uh, kind of UN cities and organizations. But in Vienna, it was um, Japan, the U.S., um, Canada, Australia, South Korea, New Zealand, and um, we met on a pretty regular basis on. North Korea and Iran on all kinds of issues. Um, and they're very reliable. Um, they, they're in the board of governors right now. There are actually, I think, 10 EU members um, plus the UK um, plus these others from the juice can. So we're almost up to 20 of pretty good um, allies. And, and maybe we are past 20. But um, it, it, as Anthony said, it does depend on the issue. Um, those that are less helpful, you know, um, I don't know. Do I need, do I need to name some names of countries? Um, there are countries that we can just say they know who they are. They know who they are. They know who they are. They they don't want to take a stand. Uh, they don't want to vote. Yes. They don't want to vote. No, they abstain all the time. They, um, which in a sense protects you know, if, if it's an abstention on Iran, that's not helpful. So there are those countries. And um, a lot of these organizations want to act by consensus. But I, I learned just by researching it when we did the last resolution that of the 12 resolutions passed on Iran safeguards up to that date, six of them had been by consensus and six had been voted. So, I mean, voting is not the end of the world. Um, but countries don't like to some countries don't like to get put in that position. So that that isn't helpful either. Closing thoughts uh, from either of you. Uh, Anthony, maybe start with you. Uh, anything that we haven't gotten across you really want our listeners to think about as this program launches? Well, you know, this this program in, in, in some ways is, is uh, you know, bringing together the expertise that, that this organization, the, the Foundation for Defense and Democracies, has in place. Uh, and there are some issues. It's hard hard to understand in this uh, in this environment. There are some issues that are bipartisan. I mentioned 
the chemical weapons uh, proliferation issue. Nuclear security is another issue that I think spans uh, Democratic and Republican administrations. But as we've been discussing here today, there are many issues where that are not uh, bipartisan. In other words, each party has a different approach, and sometimes within the party, there's a different approach. Uh, and so we're we're gonna we're gonna try and unpack some of those issues and and highlight the uh, the, the policy recommendations going forward. And you know we the, this organization FTD prides itself in sort of calling bulls and strikes and being nonpartisan. And you know we will give credit where it's due, and and we will uh, be critical when that's warranted. And and I think in a lot of these different areas. Uh, we're going in the wrong direction. There are some that we're going in the right direction, uh, and we'll 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 continue to do that. We're excited about the program. We're excited about bringing a lot of this together uh, and to talk about these issues under the nonproliferation and biodefense program umbrella. Ambassador, any closing thoughts? Um, yes, thanks, Rich. I I'm very excited to be involved with FDD. I've as I mentioned, I've admired your work for a long time um, and Cliff's work. Um, and I, I agree with Anthony. Um, there is so much expertise across the board in FDD. I'm still learning it. But um, the other thing we plan to do is also uh, put together a small board, an advisory board or board of advisors. And that's so we have people um, that we can even look to for big picture sort of advice um, and augment the expertise that already exists at FDD. So that will be forthcoming. And uh, just I'm very happy to be part of this organization and look forward to what is a little bit daunting work. Is, and it could be depressing, but I hopefully we'll make it fun. Ambassador Jackie Walcott, Anthony Ruggiero from FDD. The new program on proliferation. excited to see it grow. Thanks so much for joining. I'm Rich Goldberg. This is Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpodicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening foreign policy.